trigger warning. This program contains discussions about emotional, physical, and sexual abuse as recounted by adult survivors from their childhood experiences. The purpose of this program is to promote healing among survivors of childhood sexual abuse, primarily with men. Some of these discussions, however, may trigger past trauma. This program also includes explicit language. When he did rape me, I, I left my body. I, I left my body. I could see myself being abused from above. And that day just obviously changed my life forever. I was a changed kid. I wasn't a young little eight-year-old boy anymore. I had to grow up to survive. To take you know, and his grooming started straight away, him telling me that this is what I wanted, that I picked him up at the pool, that my parents want this, that my parents hate me, that he loves me, that no one else loves me. So the grooming and the lies and the manipulation started straight away. I said, what happened to me really fucked me up because I just felt like I was going to be alone forever. I felt like no one was going to love me. I felt like... I was never going to be able to open up and, and feel genuine love. And it just broke me. Sit at home and cry. And they're like, Nathan, what is wrong? And I couldn't tell them and I don't know and you wouldn't understand and you know, all of that stuff. So when they finally found out, when they finally heard that I, you know, I, I was raped, they're like, wow, that explains everything. And is that what happened to me is a part of my DNA. It's a part of who I am. It's not about forgetting about it. It's about moving forward with it, understanding it so I can grow with it. I'm able to, to get closure, find peace. Welcome to a conversation with Nathan Spiteri. Presented by the men of Voices Beyond Assault. I'm Laura. As most of you here today, Craig and I are also survivors. Voices Beyond Assault hosts these monthly programs because we understand that men who suffer sexual assault are not always there. We want to amplify their voices, empower them to heal, and provide the resources needed on that healing journey. We'd also like to first remind you that this program will contain discussions about emotional, physical, and sexual abuse, and may also include explicit language. We're so glad all of you could join us for this important discussion today. At that, let me introduce our guest today, Nathan Spiteri. Nathan grew up in Australia with a loving family until one day, at the age of eight, Nathan was approached by a man at a public swimming pool who brutally raped him. Following this horrific event, Nathan's perpetrator continued to insert himself into Nathan's life, forming a relationship through grooming, threats, and creating a sense of dependency. Once the abuse ended, Nathan's life began to further spin out of control as he dealt with the psychological aftermath that was left behind. After living out his pain through dangerous and self-sabotaging behavior, Nathan was able to take control of his life and begin his healing journey. Nathan then chronicled his life into the best-selling novel, Toy Cars, One Man's Journey from Trauma to Triumph. He is currently working on a documentary about his life, as well as a screenplay, and he's spoken at numerous events uh, advocating for survivors. Nathan, thank you so much for joining us today, and 
and I have to first say your book, Toy Cars, and I recommend it for everybody, was the most transparent, soul-bearing account of childhood sexual abuse and its effects I have ever seen or read from any other survivor, uh, certain from any other male survivor. You you felt it was important to get everything out there, didn't you? Um, why was that important to you? Um, hi, gentlemen. Thank you so much for having me. And I shouldn't be laughing right now, but just an introduction. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing that I bared my soul in this book. Um, for me, I, I was always of the belief that if you were going to tell a story like this, if you were going to educate the world and if you were going to try and help others find closure and peace and understanding of what happened to them, you need to include the messy parts. You need to include the thing in the middle. You know, we often hear from survivors and, you know, celebrities and and, and whatnot of, of survivors saying, I was abused as a kid, but here I am today. They don't talk about the shit in the middle. They don't talk about the messy part in the middle. And that's the most important part, the grooming, the shame, the self-sabotage, the, you know, the lies, the, the, addictions, the sex, the violence, the drugs. So in order for one to grow, in order for one to understand, in order for one to be able to move forward with their own trauma and those who haven't been in been through the trauma, in order for them to understand what one actually goes through, you needed to include the details. You needed to include the messy part. You needed to include the heavy shit. Absolutely. I think you really hit it on the head, Nathan, where you're just able to be truly honest with yourself about your experience, not sugarcoating it, not hiding it away from any of it, but being like brutally honest and saying, this is what happened. Um, we, we, we're absolutely going to get into your story, but before you do, can you kind of fill us in on a little bit of the context of who you are, you know, like your family, home life, surroundings, you know? Sure, 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 sure. Um, I'm Australian. I grew up in Australia. I now live in New York. Um, I've been here for the past 15 years, but I grew up in, in, in a small town called Queenbian, and Queenbian is just outside of Canberra. It's like, for you guys in America, it's like New Jersey to New York. It's right there just over the, you know, over the, over the Hudson River. Um, so I grew up in this small town just outside of Canberra. Canberra is the capital of Australia. And, you know, I grew up in the mid-80s when our parents would send us out and say, don't come home until, until it's dark. Don't come home until six o'clock for dinner. I had a very loving family. My parents were amazing. You know, I wanted for nothing. I've got an older sister and two younger brothers. And we were just very close. And we lived in a cul-de-sac. So we'd always be out in the street playing with the other kids in the surrounding area. Um, I had a great group of friends. So we'd always, you know, ride our bikes or go down the park and play soccer or football, rugby or, or cricket or, you know, our Australian sports. And, you know, in the summertime, we'd always be at the pool, at the local pool, or we'd go, we have a, a beach house. We'd go down to the beach and spend the summer down at the beach. So I had a great childhood, <laughs> you know, um, before this happens, let's say, let's say, yeah. you know, I, I had a normal, great childhood. Yeah. A lot of times people think that, um, 
abuse victims all had you know parents who were gone or 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 uh they were they were missing or only one parent in the household or no father for male survivors and and it actually you know your case is very different and i think that it it sheds a light on the fact that not all cases are the same that it can really happen to anyone and and you had such a great family and and in the book it was uh it, you know that was the beginning of the book and it was like okay how could this beautiful family be turned upside down um so can you now go into what happened on on that summer day it was italian australian summer so it was right around christmas time uh yeah which yeah. which was uh something i had to like keep going back and checking because <laughs> my, my brain doesn't uh doesn't accept uh that at christmas it's summer but yeah um, yeah that 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 fateful day that turned everything upside down in your world can you tell us about that yeah so it's just another we were on school holiday, so it was around Christmas time. And me and my sister, we rode our bikes down to the local swimming pool. You know, we'd done it a hundred times before. It was just the norm. We'd go and meet our friends, hang out all day, and then you know, ride our back bikes home when it's when it's dinner time, when it's nighttime. So it was just another normal day. Me and my sister rode our rode our bikes down there. Um playing and splashing around with our friends. My sister left halfway through the day with her girlfriends. You know, I was eight years old. She was probably 10 or 11. So her and her friends left and, and you know, I said, that's fine. I'll ride my bike home on, on my own. I've done it, you know, like I said, I've done it plenty of times before. So end of the day, I literally stayed there till the very end. There was no one else there. My friends had already left. So I just stayed playing on my own. I walked into the change rooms and I was followed in there by this man who I just never suspected or never thought of or, or anything. He followed me into the showers and he kind of cornered me into the showers and shoved my head against the wall and kind of dazed me, made me, you know, not knock me out, but, but dazed me and raped me in the shower. And the first thing he said to me was that if I tell anyone, he'll kill me and kill my family. And, you know, Again, context as an eight-year-old in the eighties, you took that as gospel. You you thought that was real. You know, we didn't have access to the organizations, the hotlines, the internet, mobile phones that what we have today. So I believed it and I thought if I do say anything, he is going to kill me and kill my family. So he left the shower. Um took me a while to obviously to gather myself and and get myself together because when he did rape me, I, I left my body. I, I left my body. I could see myself being abused from above. And that day just obviously it changed my life forever. I was a changed kid. I wasn't a young little eight-year-old boy anymore. I had to grow up to survive, to take care of myself and to take care of my family. And I automatically started pushing my family away. You know, and his grooming started straight away. Him telling me that this is what I wanted, that I picked him up at the pool, that my parents want this, that my parents hate me, that he loves me, that no one else loves me. So the grooming and the lies and the manipulation started straight away. Okay. Um, well, we're going to get into that in a little bit, but I just want... Your story is so horrific. I wanted to sink in with everybody. And you were eight years old, eight years old. And probably didn't even know what sex was or what 
what it was that he had just done to you. And you still remember this like it was yesterday? Is it vivid in your memory? I, it, it is because I've done the work I've, you know, the last 10, 12 years have been therapy, group therapy, EMDR. So I've done the work to, to be able to move forward with it. Um, so in order to move forward with it, I had to go back and relive it and understand it. And, and so yeah, it is vivid in my memory and I do remember it. And I, I, you know, I remember him. I remember his smells. I remember him just sweating and dripping on me. I remember, you know, all of that stuff, um, the triggers that come with that. So it, it is, it is vivid. It is something that, you know, I'm never going to forget. And, you know, this is, you know, something that I deal with not a lot now, but I used to, is a lot of people telling me to get over it and just move forward and, and forget about it because it happened so many years ago. But what people don't understand, and, and to go back to your question, what people don't understand is that what happened to me is a part of my DNA. It's a part of who I am. It's not about forgetting about it. It's about moving forward with it, understanding it so I can grow with it. I'm able to, to get closure, find peace. So, you know, it's always there. It's always going to be there but I do not let it control me anymore. I do not let it rule me. I do not let it um, bring me down. So yeah, there's been many, many years of, of, of work on myself so that I am able to talk about it like this. I am able to understand it. You know, my relationship with this man, my relationship with my family, with my parents, with friends and lovers, I'm able to understand that and, and, move forward with that and grow from that. So I, you know, when I am triggered again, when I am in a not very good relationship or, or whatever the situation is, I'm able to see it. I'm able to control it and I'm able to either move forward with it or step out of it and, and, and move forward alone. So the memories are always there and uh, the thoughts are always there. You know, I, I never go a day without thinking about it or, or, or I remember something or I get triggered by something or a memory comes up or something, whatever it is. So it's always there. But like I said, it's about understanding it and being able to move forward with it and doing the work and the education myself so that when these things do hit me, when I do get triggered, when I do have memories, as I said, I'm able to just move forward with it and, and grow with it and understand it so that if it does come again, if that trigger does come again, I'm able to understand it and push it to the side. Absolutely. Um, yeah, when people say you forget about it, like that is suppressing it. And what you need to yeah. do is bring it to the surface and process it and work through it. And so I think that's a very key message that we hear time and time again, not only for uh, anything as tragic as what happened to you, but for anything that happens in life is being able to take it and say, I want to look at this, process it, look at it, be kind of like you touched on earlier, be very, very honest with myself about what happened and take the time that I need to work on this. Um, you kind of touched on this a little bit, but you start pushing your family away. Like, is your family suspecting anything that has happened to you? Or are they just like, oh, he's an eight-year-old. He's like going through moody swings. Like, what's kind of their reaction to any of this? Exactly, exactly that. Because I, I spoke to my parents about this, you know, after coming out about it, writing my book and... and um just in general conversation. I 
was always, you know, a bit of an introvert as a kid. You know, I was never a loud, out there, crazy kid. Um, and when it happened and I pushed my family away and, and in pushing them away, I would just sit separately. I didn't want any affection from them. I would sit in my room and play with my toy cars or, or just watch movie after movie after movie and TV shows. And that's where my love for acting and film came from. But they just thought I was a quiet little kid. They just thought I was an introvert who just wanted to be alone. And I was a quiet kid who had my own imagination and, and my own, you know, my own kind of imaginary friends. And I would just sit in my room, play with my toy cars. And, and they just thought, well, as long as he's happy doing that, then, then we're happy. Um, they were, you know, they, they were a different generation. My family were European. Um, that shit doesn't happen in my family. They don't understand that. I grew up in a, in a safe little town and it was a safe little town. Um, so that was the last thing they ever suspected. That was the last thing they ever thought would have happened to me. And what's amazing is when I did come out about my story and, and a big article came out about me in Australia, and that's where this all started. Though so many people from my town, from Queenie and Canberra, reached out to me and said, the same thing happened to them at the pool. The same thing happened to them in Queanbeyan or the same thing happened to them in the Canberra region. So it was such a crazy reality that, that it, this is happening all the fucking time, but no one's ever spoken about it. No one's ever come out about it. And people are holding all of this anger and trauma and shame and whatnot inside and it's just, yeah, not healthy at all. So, yeah, my family just thought I was a quiet little kid who just wanted to be alone and, and stop playing outside with the friends and just play with his toy cars and watch movies. And, you know, as long as I was safe, as long as I was I was okay, they were okay. Yeah, your story in the book uh, does not end at at this point in the shower it actually just begins and uh, we're going to go into that a bit and because i want people to understand the effects of uh keeping this inside so i want to go step by step on, on some of the things that happened in your life that you document in the book the first thing that really strikes me is that or struck me when i was reading is that you keep referring to your perpetrator as the man um that that was interesting because i i've usually that it, it was like almost the name the man and it was like so uh it just it just conjured this image that was that was different and i want to ask you how you came up with why you chose uh that way to describe him and then tell us this wasn't the last time you saw him in the shower how, how did you see him next no it wasn't last time in, in, in the shower. And just to your original question, I always called him the man because I didn't know his name. I had no idea. He didn't come up and just introduce himself and say, hi, my name's Bob and this is who I am. It was always, what's your name? And I would tell him my name, obviously. But then he would never talk about himself. He would never say anything about himself. I knew nothing about him. He was just this man who was doing this to me and that's kind of where it came about that he was the man um and so 
yeah, this happened during my school holidays, the first time it happened. And then we started back at school. We normally started back at school. The new year started end of January, beginning of February. It always, it actually started a few days on my birthday. My birthday was February 3rd. And I remember two or three times the first day of school was actually my birthday. So we'd be back at school and a few weeks into the school year, we would have to ride or catch a bus from my home down to the bus interchange, which is where all the buses from town would come. And then we'd jump on another bus to go to school. So it was one afternoon, we caught the bus from school down to this bus interchange, waiting for our, our second bus to take us home, which always was normally about 15, 20 minutes sometimes. And, and I spoke to my best friend about this when I was writing this. This man just came up to me one day, put his arm around me, and walked away um, ever so calmly and nonchalantly and no one knew what was going on. And my best friend who is still my best friend today just thought he was my dad or a family friend or an uncle or whoever just picking me up to take me home. So no questions were asked. I didn't scream. I didn't shout. I didn't fight back. I just went with him. And this relationship with this man, and I call it a relationship, lasted about five to six years. And it was very rough and violent. He would, you know, hold me up against the wall and choke me out and beat me up and slap me in the head and, and hurt me and bruise me um, and, then, and then rape me. Again, always with the grooming and the lies and the manipulation and this is what you want. And if you say anything, you're going to go, you'll get in trouble with the police. Um, your parents want this. I love you. Your family won't believe you if you say anything, you know, just all the classic stuff. And it started out like that. It was always like that. Very rough, very violent on the couch. Um, he would never take me to his room. It was always in the living room. He would never offer me, offer me food or drink or, you know, little packets of crisps or chips or ice cream or chocolate or, or any of that stuff. Um, but through his grooming and through his manipulation, it turned into a Stockholm syndrome type relationship where I, genuinely thought I loved him, felt feelings for this man and wanted to be with him, would ride my bike down to his house and wait for him outside to see him. He told me how special I was and no other boys were special. So I thought I was special. You know, was I special with none of my other friends was, was, were, were going through this. And so for me, I just thought I was, I was a special little kid. Um, and the relationship grew in that he would sit and ask me questions about school and soccer and my friends and my family and how I was. And he would, he would give me food and drink and he wasn't violent with me anymore. And instead of raping me on the couch, he would put his arm around me again and just walk me into his bedroom and, and, and do it there. Um, that went on for about, yeah, five, six years. And then he disappeared out of my life. He, he abandoned me, as I say, because he was there one day, the next day he was gone. And for two years, I just questioned who I was, you know, am I gay? Am I straight? He told me how special I was. Was I really special? Do my parents really hate me? And by this stage, I had already really pushed my family away. I wanted no affection with them. I wanted no love from them. It was just about me and this man. Um, so I pushed everyone away and just the depression started hitting and the, uh, self-sabotage and they really going into my shell and not wanting to see anyone or speak to anyone and becoming a real introvert and really 
engrossing myself in film and TV and just watching movies and, and, and stuff like that. So yeah, for those next two years, I just questioned who I was, where I was. And that's from there was the next chapter of my life. It's so fascinating to me to see how the relationship between you and the man are changing, right? From starting with being very violent, being very abusive, and then kind of transitioning into like this weird, slightly softer, slightly more kind approach, which I'm sure for you is like a very jarring experience. And, um, you know, it's just very difficult to hear about how difficult that must be to process at the time. And I think you touched on something that I think is very, very, I think exists within a lot of survivors is this sense of you actually caring about this person and craving that sense of intimacy. And I think that is just so, so fascinating. So I kind of talk about that a little more, you know, like you said that you thought you loved this man, like, and you said he loved you and he made you say that he loved you. Do you, do you really think you did looking back? Like, I view that. I really think I did looking back. Mm-hmm. But as an eight-year-old kid, I had like how much no do you really know? <laughs> exactly. I had no idea what love was. I had no idea what intimacy and sex and what all of that stuff meant. And, you know, he would tell me how special I was. And this only happens to special little boys. And, you know, would give me a gift and, and treat, start to treat me really nicely. And because I pushed my family away, I was, I was looking for some kind of connection. I was looking for some kind of love. I was looking for some kind of intimacy. And I'm not talking sex intimacy, intimacy. I'm just talking genuine love or connection with someone. And I wanted it from him and I kind of found it from him. And that was what it was for me and where I wanted to be in, in at, at that point in time. And like I said, you know, he started treating me nicer and, and, and giving me food and, wanting to know more about me and my life. And that just made me feel really special and even more connected to him. And wow, this guy actually really does care for me and we're going to live happily ever after. And, you know, all of that crazy stuff. So was it love looking back? No, it was lust. It was, I was special and this is what love is. Not that I knew what love was. Um, It's, 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 it's tough. It's, it's hard. It's, you know, cause I explain it to people and they just, I don't get it. How, how, how it's just, you know, when you fall in love with someone, when you fall in love, you can't help who you fall in love with right or wrong people. You know, we fall in love with, with the wrong people sometimes. And, and that was what I did as an eight year old and throughout those, those five, six years with this man. And, um, but I, I think you said it best. You said you don't really know what love is then. And, and um, you know, uh, there I've read books and things uh, uh, about abuse. And when you are abused at that young of age, it interrupts your your sexual development, your mental development, your your psychological development. You know this because you've gone through all of this uh, therapy as well that you're not really sure right what it was i mean at the time it might have felt like love was it a love between a lover and like two lovers or was it a father and a son love or you know i mean it's it's very different um he gave you oh go ahead sorry no 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 that's a great question no one has ever asked me that question before 
was it a love between two lovers or a father and son love? And I think it had a, a mixture of both elements in it because, you know, I did push my father away and I looked at this man, you know, he was older than me, obviously. Um, you know, I was eight years old, so I didn't really understand age back then. So he was probably in his thirties or forties. Um, so I looked at him as my father figure and the, the guy I wanted to go and spend time with and hang out with and be with. But I also, I knew what he was going to do to me and I knew how much pain I was going to be in and the hurts and all of that stuff, but I still wanted it. I, I, I needed it and I started craving it toward the end of that, that relationship. So yes, I looked at him as a father figure, someone I could look up to, but I looked at him as someone who I could be intimate with or someone who could do these things to me because it hurt me, but it felt good. You know, I hated it. I would cry, but I still got a heart on. I still came. I still got off. Um, so yes, the pain was there, but so was the enjoyment. So it was, it was a father figure, but it was also a lover. He gave you one gift that you talk about in the book. And, and you, you mentioned earlier that you sat in your room and played with toy cars, which I think is, is a great title uh, that you chose. But he gave you one gift, didn't he? He gave me one gift and it was, it was a toy car. It was a little matchbox car. It was a little matchbox tow truck. And, you know, I would go home and play with my toy cars and, you know, it's in the story. It's in the, it's even in the, in the screenplay that's, that's been written. Um, you know, my dad gave me a toy car as well. And I remember it so vividly. It was a little gray matchbox car brand new car but for some reason the, the 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 back wheels on this car wouldn't wouldn't turn so it was something wrong with how they how they made it so i was always this broken little car and you know i would play and i had a big mat of the streets and i would play with all my cars on there and i always was this little gray broken car and this tow truck would always come and pick me up and take me to the mechanic shop and fix me up and make me better and, and treat me good. And, you know, tell all the other cars to go away. And, and that was my relationship with this man. And the tow truck played... was the car he gave you, right? The tow yeah, truck. Yeah. The toy truck. Yeah. Sorry. The little tow truck was a, was the car he gave me. And I relived my relationship with this man. I relive, I, I relived it through these cars. Um, and that's how I got some of this anger out and some of the, you know, how I would just process it and deal with it because I hadn't told anyone. I didn't tell anyone. And for me to process it and to kind of get some understanding was to play with these toy cars. I think that's so it, it speaks to something where you're trying to live it out in a scenario that's controllable in within your grasp. And I think yeah. that's very true as well. Cause a lot of survivals today, like, Oh, like I think back to that moment and I try to live it, but again, or I journal about these moments and I rewrite my own story. Um, and I think that is a great way for people to just process what they've been through. Um, so, you know, uh, you know, months and years that follow this relationship with your man, there's so many things that are changing, right? Your relationships with your family has changed. Your friends, your age who are developing and growing, those yeah. are changing. Um, like kind of walk us through a little bit about maybe a little bit what your relationship with your friends were like, you know, like, are they noticing anything? Did it affect their friendships? Did it not? Um, 
again, I spoke to my friends about this and it's in the book as well that I remember, you know, we would always have school discos or school socials or I think, do you call them discos here in America? <laughs> you know, when, when, you know, cause we, I went to an all male school, but across the road was an all female school. So, you know, every semester, every term, we would have this school social or a school dance where disco, where the, the, you know, the boys and the girls from the same year group would come together and have this little party and dance and stuff. And I would never go. I would never go to these. And my friends would always ask, why don't you want to go? And they just thought that my mum said I wasn't allowed to go. Um, and even as we got older, you know, 15, 16, 17, 18 after school, and we'd go out and my friends are always going out and always going to, to, you know, nightclubs and parties and this and that. And I would never go. And they're like, what is wrong with you? You know, you're a good looking guy. You meet so many women. These women love you, but you just don't care. You don't, you want nothing to do with these women. And, you know, from the young age, I, I, they, my friends would be going to these school discos and parties and whatnot and hooking up and, you know, making out with girls for the first time and having sex for the first time and touching girls and all of that stuff. But I just thought I was a lucky one. I was a special one because I had this special man in my life and they weren't lucky. They weren't special. They were going off to meet these girls, but I had this man who loved me and treated me this way and we would have sex. And so they just, and I would always say no, or I'd always use the excuse I'm not allowed or my mom wouldn't let me. And, um, my friends always knew I was off. They always thought it, thought it. And it's funny because when I finally came out to my friends and told them my story and told them what happened to me, they all just thought, and, and they said, we just thought you were gay and you didn't come out about it or you didn't know how to come out about it. Or, you know, when I started meeting girls and going out and hooking up with girls and having sex with girls, you know, my friends would always say, and this is just, you know, how they would say it. We just thought you were trying to fuck yourself straight because you were gay. And, you know, that's just how the talk was back then. We're talking 10, 10 years ago, but they just thought I was just trying to sleep with all these girls to try and be straight or to pretend to be straight because they all just thought I was gay and didn't come out about it. In a way, you might have been trying to prove something to yourself, right? And we know that you Maybe. know that now. Yeah. Maybe, maybe, maybe. And it's it's weird because the next chapter of, of that of my life back then was I would, you know, from 15 years old, the next suburb over from where I lived was an industrial part of town. And this industrial part of town, there were a lot of gay clubs and cruise lounges and sex clubs. So I would ride my bike there as a 15-year-old. I would sneak in. I would let these men abuse me again and rape me again. And then I would turn around and beat them up and bash them and rob them. And, and that was my fuck you to the world. That was my way of getting my power back. That was my way of feeling alive. But I was doing this whilst I was trying to have a girlfriend, be in a relationship with a girl. And I remember, I remember so vividly. And again, it's in my book. I don't, I don't remember my age. It was probably 11, 12 years old, but I was watching a movie. And it was called Class. And um, it had Catherine Bissett in it and, and Rob Lowe and, and, and someone else. I can't remember his name. And it's about this affair between this older lady and this younger man. And I was watching it at home. And I remember, <laughs> it's funny, but 
I remember vividly, it was the first time I got a genuine hard on from sex scene between a man and a woman. And I'm like, wow, I was intrigued. And I'm like, what is this? And what is going on with me? And I loved it, but I hated it because it wasn't the norm because I was with this man and I shouldn't be doing this and feeling this way about this woman. And she was so beautiful and I was so in love with her. And um, so I was always complicated with, with, with my sexuality as a young kid, you know, and I would go to these sex clubs and do these things with these men. And again, as I said before, I would let these men abuse me and do what they did with me. I hated it. It was the most revolting thing in the world. I knew it was wrong. These men were hurting me, but I still got hard. I still came. I still got off and I needed it. And I needed it. It was like a drug. I was addicted to it. Um, there was never, there was never any intimacy with these men. You know, I wouldn't touch them, kiss them, hold them, caress them. There was no, any of that. It was just the act. And I needed to feel the act. Whereas with these women or these girlfriends I was with, I wanted to hold them and caress them and touch them and, you know, love them and, hold their hand and and so there was such a interesting kind of dichotomy it was an interesting kind of way of of going through my my early sex years of just fuck i love women but i just need men and i want to feel this and i i was just so lost and confused and and alone and couldn't show any intimacy to the women i was with um how did the abuse end with the man and and how did that make you feel sorry yeah um it just ended because he just disappeared he just he he disappeared out of my life you know he was there one day the next day he was gone so he either got caught he either got in trouble he either had to quickly run out of town because something happened to him whatever the situation was and then i just kept going back to his house waiting for him outside for months just where is this man you know i knew his car and he, his car was never out the front anymore and i'm like what the fuck is going on where is he and just getting more and more upset and more and more angry and he abandoned me and you know all of that stuff and all of a sudden out of the blue this this car appeared at the at the house one day i the car was there i i rode my bike down past it and, and saw it there so i thought maybe he's back maybe he's got a new car whatever the situation was so I rode my bike and I, I parked my bike across the street and just kind of sat there behind a parked car and just waited and maybe he'll come out. Maybe I'll see him. Where, where is he? Um, he? No one ever showed. So I just went and knocked on the door, um, hoping it was him. But this lady answered and she asked me who I was. And I asked, is, you know, is the man, is the man here? I was looking for the man who lives here. And she just said, he doesn't live here anymore. He's gone. And she said, how do you know my husband? So obviously it was his ex-wife or they had separated because all I thought, I think they had separated because she was never, ever there in the, in the five years or however long I'd never seen her. And then she said, how do you, oh, yes, she goes, how do you know my husband? And what did he do to you? And when she said, he's not here, he's not coming back. I just ran, jumped on my bike and, and ran away or rode away. And, and that was it. And that's when I just questioned who we were, oh, who I was and 
where I belong in the world and this this man abandoned me. So I pushed my family away and now I don't have him and I truly have no one. And the depression really hit and I just really isolated myself and became even more of an introvert and, and didn't want to see anyone or speak to anyone. Uh, so yeah, you're going from this like very turbulent, chaotic environment, <clears throat> but now that it's over, like, like some people may ask, like now that this person is gone from your life, have you, did you think about finally opening yeah. up your family and telling others, or were you still like so confused and trying to like process everything? Where, where were you at? Exactly that. I was so confused and trying to process everything and you know, he told me my family hate me. He told me that this is what I want. And he told me that my parents want me to be with him. And if I ever say anything, they're never going to believe me and I'll get in trouble with the police. So that was always there after five years of just drilling that into my head, that those, those ideas and that concept was always there that, you know, I can't say anything. And, you know, he, you know, throughout those years, he always did say, if you tell anyone, I'll kill you and kill your family. You know, that constant threat was always still there. So, I just pushed it down as far as I could and pretend it never, ever happened. And, you know, even though I pushed my family away, I still loved them, even though I didn't show them any love. And I still didn't want anything to happen to my parents. And I didn't want my, my two little brothers to be killed or my sister to be, to be killed. Or, and I didn't want to die. And I didn't want to go to jail. And I didn't want to get in trouble with the police. So I just pushed it far down as, 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 as hard as I can and pretend it didn't exist. And, went on with life and pretended to be some normal kid. And, and, and that's what broke me. That's what killed me. The fact that I kept it a secret for, you know, for all those years and, and I needed to do what I needed to do to survive, to feel and, and the addictions and the drugs and the sex and the mm -hmm. violence all came into play. And it all stemmed from me not talking about it. It all stemmed from me not being able to open up. It all stemmed from me believing this man and, 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 pushing everyone else away. So at 15, you went into your first gay bathhouse or gay club, what you yeah. call it. Yeah, yeah. Um, first of all, I'm, was there not an age limit uh, to go in there? Because I mean, <laughs> I, I no. just can't even there imagine. Probably was, yeah, there probably was an age limit. There was an age limit. You had to be 18. In Australia, it's 18 years old. Um, yeah, so but, did but the again, men... You know, didn't they know you were underage when you went? We're in talking there? about the they probably did, but we're talking about the nineties where the people who worked at this store kind of just thought I was some young little horny kid who was just trying to sneak in. And sometimes they would catch me and and kick me out, or sometimes they just didn't see me, or I would hide behind things. And one when a man would go in and the door was open, I would sneak in that way. I always found a way to get in. Um, what drew you to go in there? What what what? Well, I always knew. Because, because it was the the suburb over from our from where I lived, you know, going home, I we we would drive through there, so we would see them, and we knew they were sex clubs, and you know, as kids, everyone talks about it, and you know, we all knew that's where the brothels were in that suburb, and that's where all the sex clubs were in that suburb, and that's where you buy fireworks from in that suburb. So that was we all knew about that. That was the the sex and drugs and fireworks suburb that was illegal everywhere else, but it was legal here. Um, so we knew it existed and I was intrigued by what he did to me. I was intrigued by the sex and I, 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 I needed it. I was addicted to it. I had to feel that feeling again. It was the only thing that made me feel anything and feel alive and feel 
wanted and loved and, and in some kind of intimate relationship or being. So if it came through violent sex with men, then, then that's how I was going to get it. So do you think you were reliving your abuse in, in retrospect or yeah, was it? Yeah. Yeah. I was living my abuse in retrospect. I was living my abuse through this man. And, and that's why I beat these men up because I was angry at my man, you know, not, these poor men did nothing to me. Yes, they raped me, but they didn't know I was a willing participant. Um, and then, you know, I would turn around and hit them or steal their wallet or whatever. And it was a fuck you, but it wasn't a fuck you to them. It was a fuck you to this man. But yes, it was a fuck you to the world. But, you know, it was it was this guy. I was reliving my pain with this guy and what he made me feel and how he made me feel. I needed to feel it again. And if I had to do it through these guys and I would do it and, you know, he beat me up and I wanted to feel that feeling. I would beat them up. Some of them would turn around and hit me and beat me up or whatever it was, or yeah, many situations where I beat them they beat me. I just, sometimes I wouldn't do anything and I would just leave or they would, you know, have their way with me and then just get up and walk out of the room. And I was, so beaten up, I would just lie there for hours or lie there for until I could compose myself and, and sneak out again. Um, go home and, you know, I had some, if I had a black eye or, you know, whatever the situation was or bruises, I just said, I, you know, I got into a fight with a kid on the street or we were playing football or rugby and I got hit in a tackle or, you know, I always had some excuse to, to get away with it. And like I said, my parents just thought I was a quiet little kid. And the fact that I was actually now going out and playing with my friends great go 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 so they never no one ever suspected they would never suspect me going to these sex clubs or, or riding my bike to this suburb and and being a part of this i think that anybody might have seen you that that like recognized you in your neighborhood because it wasn't that far away um yeah no i didn't i didn't even think about that but I would always ride my bike as fast as I could and hide as, you know, as I was riding and, and go on the side streets or the back streets and, and stuff like that. And when I rode my, when I would get to these, these, these sex clubs, I would always park my bike around the corner and lock it up and around the back behind a, a warehouse so that there was no one there. And I would always, <laughs> if there were cars driving past on the street, I would always hide wait for there be to be no cars driving past, wait for there be to be no one walking by. And I would run as hard and as fast as I can inside so no one would see me. And then just wait for the perfect moment for that door to open and sneak myself in there. So I was always aware and just, you know, making sure no one ever saw me and would run and would hide and would hide my bike and just to make sure that that yeah, no one would know. Yeah, it just seems like you, there's this like very persistent theme of you hiding, right? Hiding from yeah. yourself, hiding from others. You know, you're like in these clubs and I can only imagine what you're feeling of being like, I want this. This is something I'm desiring, but also I feel so much rage. And those two just having so much conflict with each other. Like, what do you think that was doing to your sense of self, you know, during that time? Like, uh, I, I, I hated myself. I hated who I was. I hated the world. You know, my dad used to smoke, so I I would steal his cigarettes and smoke. I he, I would steal his his beers. I would steal his whiskey and drink, and that was my way of self soothing. And and but I was miserable. 
I hated my life. I hated who I was. And, you know, I, I tried killing myself and I, I, I didn't deserve happiness. I didn't deserve love. It was all self-sabotage. I didn't deserve happiness. I didn't deserve love. I didn't deserve anything good in my life. And if something good in my life did come about, I made sure to ruin it. I made sure to make sure it didn't happen. I made sure that, you know, it would, I lived in misery and living in misery was, was doing these things with these men being alone all the time, not having any friends and just reliving that, that trauma. So, um, after school ended, you graduated, uh, you got a job, you traveled a bit. Did things ever get better for you? Yeah, I, I, I was always, you know, I was meeting girls and having sex with a lot of girls and, and, you know, I'd get into a relationship here or there and would be with them and, and really tried. But again, I, I just didn't know how to do the intimacy or, or to open up and communicate and, and talk about my feelings or anything like that. Um, I would still go and have sex with men and be a little violent with men. But that was becoming a lot less because I just wanted to be with these girls and trying. But that part of me was always there. It was always that little devil sitting on my shoulder. And I knew that this suburb was always there. These sex clubs are always there. I can go whenever I want. So it was, it was always kind of calling me, but I tried my hardest to, to keep away. Um, and I would, yeah, I, I, started working and was traveling and trying to live a normal life and pretend to be a normal person. But I, you know, discovered drugs and, and was falling in with the wrong crowds and was going out a lot and copious amounts of ecstasy and acid and speed and cocaine and, you know, doing what I needed to do to numb the pain and soothe the pain and pretend that it wasn't there and it didn't happen. And it was a vicious cycle. It's a hamster on a wheel just going round and round in circles, trying to live a normal life and be normal. But the, the, the anger and the shame and the hatred and the was all there. And it was just, you know, I would push it away, pretend it doesn't exist because I would do that. It would come back and hit me again. And it would hit me twice as hard. And it would just build and build and build and build and build until I exploded until I had to do something until I did something bad until I hurt someone or, would go and have sex with a man or, or whatever the situation was because I, I hadn't dealt with it because I hadn't spoken about it because I hadn't done anything to deal with what I went through. I soothed myself through drugs and alcohol and sex and violence and, and misery and just sitting alone on my own all the time watching movies. Yeah. Just the the constant running away from self, right? Like always addressing the symptoms, the the things at the at the very edges instead of really to getting to the core and the heart of the matter. Um, and what was like, you know, we we read the story where at one point you decide to call people you had hurt and apologize. Like what 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 triggers that? Because I feel like that's such a great departure from who you kind of were before, where you're just like engaging in all these very self destructive actions and then realizing. Maybe I want to call these people and apologize. Yeah, well, that was that was a lot later on in life after I had kind of 
realized what came out and of what I'd went through and, and, and therapy and stuff like that. So I, I, I needed to give back. Cause I, you know, I went to AA and, and I needed to make amends and I needed to, you know, so I, I reached out to a bunch of women that I'd hurt and that I cheated on and that I, you know, I wasn't a nice guy. I wasn't a very nice boyfriend back then. And I own my shit and I own who I was back then. And, you know, it's hard to talk about and, people are going to have their ideas about me, but yeah, I wasn't a nice person, but I'm completely honest and open and real. And, you know, like I said, I own my shit. I own who I was. And in order for me to kind of get some closure, find some peace, I needed to make amends. And and so I called a few, you know, I called close to about 10 people. And out of these 10 people, two of them told me to go fuck myself and they never want to speak to me again. And I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm an asshole. Fair enough. I get it and I accept it. And I apologize. Eight people said to me, Nathan, you're an asshole, but that's the nicest thing anyone's ever done is to ring up and actually apologize because, you know, a lot of other boyfriends have hurt them or guys have hurt them, but these guys will never own it. And these guys will always blame the girl and she's a crazy bitch and she's this or she's that or whatever it was you know, we always put the blame on the girl instead of looking at ourselves. And, you know, they said, Nathan, thank you so much. I I really appreciate you apologizing. We can't be friends or I'm not going to forgive you, but you, you helped me get some closure and understand what you went through and who you were. And, and, and that was a big part of my healing journey, being able to, you know, recognize the fact that I'd hurt people and, try and make amends and try and find some peace and try and get some closure. Um, you know, I was hoping that when my story came out, like I said, a big article came out about me in Australia. I was hoping, you know, one or two of these men who I hurt would come out and reach out to me or whatever, but you know, no one has, but I would love to speak to these men as well and apologize and, and, mm-hmm. you know, get them some, you'll give them some understanding and, and some, you know, maybe some peace and closure because it was traumatic for them too. I hurt these guys. I beat them up. I bashed them. I did what I did to them. I robbed them. So, you know, I've hurt a lot of people in my life. I really have. And it's, you know, it pains me to say it, but I, I can't take it back. I can't change it. I own it. I'm trying to make amends and I'm trying to give back now and, and create change and understanding for what, what, you know, men like you and I go through, um, and women, what they go through, um, what someone who has been sexually abused, physically abused, mentally, emotionally abused, what we all go through. Um, and it is, it is hard. It is hard to talk about it. It is hard to come forward. It is hard to find some understanding and find some peace and get some closure. So if I can facilitate that for people, if I can help people do that, then amazing amazing you know what happened to me happened for a reason the reason why it happened to me is to educate the world is to tell my story is to save a life and yes i want to help victims who have been abused or or survivors who have been abused but i also want to help people who haven't been abused understand what people like you and i go through our train of thought our thinking the whole the whole stockholm syndrome the whole grooming manipulation process like Nathan, you wanted to go back and see him. You felt love for this man and people who don't, who haven't been through it, don't understand it. So if I can help educate them on that, 
it's only going to help them in their relationships moving forward. It's only going to help us as survivors in our relationships moving forward. And it's a trickle down effect. It's, it's, you know, if we help ourselves, we're going to be helping our loved ones, our families, our work friends, our, our best friends. It's going to, it's not, I'm not just helping myself. I'm not just finding some peace for myself. I'm finding peace for my whole community all the people around me that surround me that are part of my life and who have to deal with my bullshit or my drama or my whatever that I'm going through. But, you know, once I come out and tell them and I, I explain to them what I went through and, and I'm believed and, and I'm loved and I'm supported, then I'm not just helping myself and my relationship with myself. I'm helping my relationship with hundreds of people and their relationship with hundreds of people as well. So it is that trickle down effect where you help one, you're helping many and many and many and thousands and thousands. And it's just, it goes like yeah. that. I think um, that's so well said, Nathan. And um, it's, it's kind of why we do what we do. Um, we, we forget, uh, well, sometimes we forget or we don't think of, we, of all the people that are affected by abuse beside us. Uh, you know, all the people that we've acted out against or not acted correctly or not been a good partner to or uh, gone through bouts of depression and, and it's how it affects them. And you're right, it affects a lot of people in one's life. And uh, I really commemorate you, you know, for, for taking the steps that you're doing and for writing this book, which is had to be hard to write. Um, it was hard to read because it'd be hard to read because it was so um, gut wrenching and and so and I think the first time I met you, do you remember what I said to you? I I said um, I'm not sure I'm not talking to a ghost. Oh, uh, that's right. That's right. That's because right. Uh, because I didn't know how anybody had gone through what you had gone through could be alive and yeah and i should be, i should be dead i should be in jail i should be in a gutter somewhere i should be but you know touch wood someone's looking out for me and 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 i'm meant to be here to tell this story um you know there are still so many men and women in the world who are unable to talk who are unable to open up there's not especially men you know there's not many of us doing this work so if I can be one of those, if I can, you know, like I said, create change and, and really, you know, put my story out there. And I've, I've really put my story out there. If I can do that and help someone else do that, then so be it. That's, that's, that's what it's about. Oh, I want to go back to that point that that turning point for you 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 moved from you lived in sydney for a while one of the things also i'm always surprised at is like i look i look at your life in this book and then i think okay he's got to be like in his 50s by now with all the things that have happened to him and then i say <laughs> then i read and then i see that you're like 23 and i'm like oh my god you know how could so much happen at that young age but you moved to new york from sydney and that was a turning point for you yeah. um can you tell us about that a bit I moved to New York. I was, you know, I was doing some modeling and some acting in Australia and I was up in Sydney and I was a personal trainer and, and, and studying acting and doing some work up there. And I got invited to New York to study and become a professional actor here. And I, I, 
jumped at the chance because I, like I said, I loved film. I loved watching movies my whole life and, and film was just, I could just sit and watch movies all day, every day. And I also thought of it as a chance to get away from my past, to get away from that life and start afresh and start over. And no one knows me here. I can just be me and start again. But, you know, you move to New York. It's the biggest, baddest city in the world. You can get what you want, when you want, how you want it, twice as cheap as anywhere else. And for a good while, I was okay. But then I fell back into it. I fell back into the drugs and the violence and the sex with men and trying to be with women and, and shooting heroin and smoking crack and stole my body for sex. I, you know, I, I really fell back into it because I was alone and I was just more lonely than ever, more depressed than ever, tried killing myself. And probably about three years into it, you know, I had my best friend from school and she didn't want to be my friend anymore. She was done with me because, you know, we we're both trying to be actors and I was going down one road and she was trying to live the good life and, you know, really concentrate on her career. I was trying to concentrate on my career, but I, I couldn't get away from the, from the ugliness of, of who I was. So it was my birthday. It was February. So it was freezing cold. I had a party. <laughs> no one came or hardly anyone came. She came for five minutes and said, I'm done with you. I don't want to be your friend anymore. She's Canadian. She was moving back to Canada and she goes, I'm done. I'm out. Um, and that just kind of sent me in a tailspin. I went out and did some something bad and hurt someone. Um, and then I knew it was now or never. You know, when I, when I was violent with this last person, I looked at myself in the mirror and I saw the younger version of me. I saw the eight-year-old me and I saw the man looking at me and I was turning into this man. Not that I was sexually abusing people, but just the violence and the grooming and the manipulation he put onto me, I was starting to put on the others. So I rang my friend the next day and said, I need to talk to you. I need to talk to you. And, and if you never want to speak to me again after this, I totally understand. I, I get it. Um, so we had a cafe that we would always go to. It was a cafe near our school. So we met there. It was a Wednesday afternoon, or I think it would have been about four o'clock. The cafe was full of people. It was freezing cold. She was there. I walked in, we sat at the table and she was, you know, quite cold and just, what do you want? I, you know, I, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm out. And I couldn't, I couldn't, I still couldn't say it. I still didn't know how to talk about what happened to me. So she was about to get up and leave. And I just blurted out. I was raped as a kid. And it was the first time I ever said those words in over 25 years. I hadn't told a soul for 25 years. And that's what killed me. So I, I told her I was raped as a kid. She sat back down. I'm like, you are the very first person I am telling. I have never told a soul. I was abused as a kid. And, you know, she asked the who, the what, the when, you know, all those kind of general questions. And I told her I didn't go into the, detail of the you know the beating up men and the sex with men i couldn't do that yet i wasn't ready for that i didn't know how to do that but she helped me find a therapist um so that's where my therapy and my my healing journey started was through that and and helped me find a therapist and i got into group therapy and rehab and i you know did the aa narcotic sex anonymous but just kind of went into aa um 
and you know therapy saved my life i would i recommend therapy and group to to anyone aa to anyone because it works if you put the work in it it works um and that's where the whole change came from that's where the whole next chapter of my life started uh, i mean i think it seems like a turning point for you was a friend saying hey this relationship is no longer good for us and i think yeah it's a very that must be a tough moment to kind of tough pill to swallow to kind of be there and be like wow. like genuinely hurting the person and the people that i care about yeah and the consequences are coming back on you. Who would have thought? <laughs> and I love this girl. This girl was my best friend. And, and, you know, we almost had a relationship, but I fucked that one up as well. But, you know, luckily she stayed friends with me. And I, when I told her, I thought, all right, great. I've told her now. You know, and yes, there was a huge weight off my shoulders. But after I told her and I left that cafe, I felt more alone and more lonely than ever because I'm like, holy fuck, now this begins now I'm really alone and I don't know what to do. So it was the most healing journey I've ever been on my life was finally saying those words, but it was one of the scariest and most lonely as well. Yeah. I think uh, anyone uh, who I've shared their stories can definitely agree. You know, you've gone from all this hiding and all this isolation and now you're in the light out of the darkness and everything is out there and it's it's very disorienting it's very jarring but ultimately a step in the right direction we're so glad you did um so you finally tell someone you feel huge weight is lifted off but i still feel so exposed and vulnerable but still somehow isolated like did you then tell your family about your abuse like so i told my family about six months after it so i i just told my friend sam she helped me get into therapy. So I was in therapy for about six months and my therapist and I devised a plan to tell my family. Um, I didn't know how to tell them. And my parents were coming to New York to visit about six months after I, I, I finally shared what happened to me. So, you know, my, me and my therapist spoke about it. And we worked out how to do it. So I, I went to dinner with my parents. We went to this cafe and or restaurant we sat outside. The weather was nice. It was, it was summertime. Weather was nice. We sat outside alone, far from everyone else. And, you know, again, my parents are just sweethearts and we're at dinner and, you know, and I'm sure most parents could relate to this. I said to them, there's something I really need to tell you. There's something, you know, I, I need to tell you. And the first thing my mom said was, you got a girl pregnant. <laughs> like, no. You're in trouble with the police. No, you owe someone money. No, all those, you know, all those typical kind of parent questions. You owe someone money. Someone's after you, you know, all of that type stuff. You got a girl pregnant, whatever, you know, all of that. And I'm like, no, please just shut up. I need to talk to you. And I said, I was raped as a kid. I was abused as a kid. And mom was like, don't be stupid. No one raped you. No one abused you. We were, you know, we were great parents. I'm like, no, it wasn't you. It happened at the pool. And... Again, they wanted to know the who, the what, the when, the where, the why, you know, all of those basic questions. And I, sorry, this stuff kills me. I told them. And in real life, my mom was a disciplinarian. My mom was a, you know, she's a tough lady. She, she's very caring and very loving. But if we did wrong, we'd know about it. And my dad was a real softie in real life. My dad is a gentle, sweetheart, teddy bear. 
And it was the first time ever I saw their roles reversed. And it was so fucking crazy and freaky. My dad became very protective and he was always protective of us, but he became the alpha male. Who was he? I want to kill this man. You know, all of those questions. And I'm like, please, no, just leave it. And it was the first time ever my mum. it wasn't the first time ever, it was the first time I really saw it, that my mum was just so caring and loving and crying and just wanted to give me the hug of my life. And she did. She got up and just grabbed me and, and hugged me and held me so tight. And it was the most awkward hug of my life. And I just needed to get out of it because... Yeah, you know, my parents always tried to give me intimacy. My always parents always tried to love me, but I would never have it. And I would always push them away as a kid. And for the first time, I'm really getting it now. This is really happening and I'm really getting this love. And she's really, and I just needed to get out of it. So it happened. Then we went back home. And, you know, they they slept in my bed. I was sleeping on the couch. We didn't sleep. We didn't speak about it again for that night. And I think, you know, they just needed to process it. But I just heard my mum cry throughout the night. And I was just sleeping on the couch and it just fucking broke my heart. And then we didn't speak about it for about six months. You know, because... um... oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say we didn't speak about it for about six months because they needed to understand it. They needed to process it. They needed to go through what they were going through, through their guilt and their shame and their, their grieving process. And so it was, it was hard. You know, I, I read that scene. Um, I think I told you about it in an airplane and um, I just started blubbering like, like, and, and everybody around me, I don't know what they thought, but I was reading that scene and I think, you know, part of it's because I'm a parent, part of it's I never got to talk to my parents about what happened, that um, it, whatever it was, but it just really was the most emotional scene I felt like, um, you know, in, in the book, but there's yeah. lots of them. Yeah. The um, then, though, uh, you were very close to your brothers and your sister in particular, and um she was very instrumental in, in helping you and keeping you alive. I, th I feel like, um, how did you tell her? I was closest in age with her and we were always close, but I was always, you know, I, I always had that hand up to, you know, not let it get too close. You know, we'd we'd sometimes go out and party together. I'd slept with a few of her friends, so I, you know, I I hurt her as well, and I didn't wasn't the nicest brother on occasion. And I called her before I spoke to mum and dad, just to let her know that I was going to tell mum and dad. And I told her on the phone, and she wanted to know the who, the what, and the when. You know, all of those questions. And she, the one thing she said that really struck me and hit me. And my mum literally said the same words after I told mum was, you know, when I told my sister, she said, wow, that explains everything about you. Now I understand who you are and why you were the person that you were because now they got the answers they needed because they would always ask me and question me, what's going on with you? Where are you? What's happening? As I was getting older in my late teens and early twenties and 
they saw the depression, they saw the drinking and the drugs and just going from girl to girl and just crying all day, every day. And I would just sit at home and cry. And they're like, Nathan, what is wrong? And I couldn't tell them and I don't know and you wouldn't understand and, you know, all of that stuff. So when they finally found out, when they finally heard that I, you know, I, I was raped, they're like, wow, that explains everything. And, you know, it, it's, it's been a, a trying time. It's, you know, it's been, it has been tough with my family and, you know, we're in a great place now, but there were years as well, even after I came out where I kept them at arm's length and I, you know, wouldn't communicate and wouldn't open up and would hurt them still. And wasn't the nicest brother or the nicest son because I would, you know, fall off the wagon or I'd act out or I'd do something stupid because of the shame or the triggers or the guilt or whatever I was feeling. And, you know, to a certain extent, I still needed to feel those feelings to kind of feel something. I mean, your book, they couldn't have known everything that you wrote in your book because no. uh, <laughs> how did they react to that? What was their reaction um, to that? I mean, because as a parent, it would be just so hard to read your book. I can't tell you if I were your parent, I don't know how I would get through that book. My mom is the only one who's read it. My sister hasn't read it. My two brothers haven't read it. My dad's not going to read it. And it was so interesting. Mum read it and there were no questions I'm getting emotional. There were no questions about the man. There were no questions about the abuse. And I think this may be my mum's way of processing and, and trying to understand. She would only ask questions about the stupid things I did, about the drugs or about the parties or about you slept with that person or you let that, do, you let that person do that to you. It wasn't about the abuse at all. She didn't want to know about it. She just asked about the other stuff and just said, no, you know, everyone's going to read this. You are so embarrassing. And, and you know, she, she was very proud of me, but she made light of it. She didn't want to get into the seriousness of it. She didn't still, I think, and maybe you, Craig, as a parent, you'd understand. She didn't want to know about the abuse. She didn't want to talk about that. She just wanted to talk about the stupid stuff, the mundane stuff, the stuff that didn't count, that didn't matter. But what about the gay clubs and the beating up men? I mean, nah, that had nah. to, she didn't want to talk about that. No, 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 no. But and, you know that if she read the book, it affected her. Oh, absolutely it has. Absolutely it has. Because, you know, I'm, I'm here, my parents are in Australia, and... You know, we FaceTime once every few weeks or we'll speak once a week just to, you know, to check in with each other. And I've been through some very dark days here on my own and just depressed and crying. And and I remember early last year, probably around February, March, April, May last year, so about a year and a half ago now, they rang me up and, and I was in a bad place. I was just depressed you know, a girl I was dating just broke up with me and I was just lost. I felt so alone and so lost. And we we FaceTimed each other and I said to him, and this is the first time I've ever said these words to them or maybe to anyone. I said, what happened to me 
really fucked me up because I just felt like I was going to be alone forever. I felt like no one was going to love me. I felt like I was never going to be able to open up and, and feel genuine love. And it just broke me. And, 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 you know, my mom said, yeah, yeah, it did. And, and we understand and we're here for you and we love you. And we are so proud of what you're doing. And it, it you know, it really, it really fucking got me um, to hear them say that and just to be so vulnerable with them. So we have a, you know, we have a great relationship now and, you know, they don't, they still don't really ask about anything there for them. Now it's, as long as you're happy, we're happy. Are you okay? How's your, you know, how's your mental state? As long as you're not depressed, we're okay. You know, so they're supporting me and, you know, it's hard because I'm doing all this work and this work is hard work and, you know, there's a lot of rejections and, um, so they see the, the struggle I go through because they ask me. So it's, you know, it is hard for them and, you know, they've told me to go home and, and, but I, I can't do it. I can't live a normal life. I can't, I, I, it's not who I am. What I've been through, I, I can't do it. So, it, you know, it has been a roller coaster ride with my family and my parents. And, but they've never stopped loving me. They've never stopped supporting me. They've never stopped. If I was ever in trouble, they'd be over here in a heartbeat and, and help me out and get me out of trouble or whatever the situation was. Um, my brothers and sister as well, you know, they've always been there for me, but it's been a fractured type relationship where one day we're good, the next day we're not good. So, you know, it's, it, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, as they say. And it's, it's definitely made me stronger and I'm resilient now and I know who I am and I know what I'm about and I understand my life and what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you touched on so many, so many relatable moments as you were talking. I was just like, oh, that's exactly how I felt there. Oh my goodness. Like that's an exact, very similar conversation. You know, that wondering like, can I ever have a healthy and happy relationship outside of what I've gone through? And can I even afford that to someone? And that's, that's a very real question that I think a lot of survivors go with. Um, like, can you like, do you feel like you've been able to rediscover that intimacy in your relationships? Do you feel like you have been able to kind of bring that in and incorporate it in a healthy manner? Is it something that you're still working through? Um, I'm, you know, we're never healed. We learn every day. You know, we're learning every day of who we are and what we are and what we're going through. And it's, for me, it's an everyday thing and I'm growing every day and with my intimate relationships. And, you know, like I said, I broke up with a girl last year and I was dating against someone recently and, um, I'm open and I'm ready for love. I'm, I'm to have a healthy relationship. You need communication. You need vulnerability. If you don't have those two, you've got nothing. So I, you know, you've read my memoir. I'm an open book and, you know, a lot of people I meet will, you know, obviously with Google now, but when you meet someone, you'll Google them. So, you know, a lot of these girls I go on dates with are all who I date know about me before they know me and they've always got questions and and it has been hard because for a while there 
I would go on dates and they'd be like, wow, you're amazing. And you're so fascinating. And I want to know everything about you. But then at the end of the date, but I'm never going to date you. I can't date you because of what you've been through, but I just wanted to hear your story and learn about you. So it has been hard. There's been a lot of that, but you know, I've also dated someone who didn't read the book or didn't want to read the book for a good six months or so because she wanted to get to know me for, for me, for who I am and what I am today. And today I'm a, I'm a pretty good person. I'm a very good fucking person. And I don't care for the bullshit anymore. And I don't care for the drama and, and I'm very open and honest and communicative and, you know, I'll, I'll show vulnerability and I'll cry when I need to cry and I'll talk about how I'm feeling. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very, I try and be very loving and open to touch. And, you know, I was, I would never let anyone touch me and I felt it awkward. And, but now I, I want it and I'm ready for it and I'm open to it. And, you know, I, I want it. I want all that. If you could look in the mirror right now and see your eight-year-old self and what would you say to him? What would you say to eight-year-old <laughs> Nathan? Yeah, what would I say to eight-year-old Nathan? And this is a big part of my healing journey. You know, this is a big thing I went through with my with my therapist and it's in my book. Because my therapist, and I love her to death and she passed away, God bless her. But, you know, she would always say, Nathan, if you could go back and talk to your eight-year-old self, what would you tell him? And I would um and ah, and I had no idea. And I would just, I don't know. And she was a, she was a, a tough woman and we should always be on me and, and would not let it go. And then it just kind of hit me. It just came to me. And, and I blurted it out to her and I said, you know, if, if I could go back and speak to your eight-year-old, my, my eight-year-old self, I would tell him that it wasn't his fault because throughout my life, it was my fault. I deserved it. This is what was meant to happen to me. I don't deserve love. I don't deserve happiness. So as soon as I learned and as soon as I told my eight-year-old self that it wasn't his fault, a huge weight was lifted off my shoulders and, and I was able to understand my relationship with this man more clearly. I was able to, able to understand my relationship with my parents and my family and friends and lovers more clearly. And I was able to finally move forward and find some peace and get some closure and, and discover who I was and who I am mentally, emotionally, sexually. And yeah, so that was a big, big part of my healing journey. And another big part of my healing journey was forgiveness, finding forgiveness and finding forgiveness for myself for the hurt that was put onto me, but also the hurt that I've put onto others. And in order for me to grow and move forward, I needed to find that forgiveness because for the past 20, 30 years of my life, I was so angry and hated the world and just wanted to feel it. And it would just build and build and build until I would act out, until I would do something stupid. And, you know, people ask me, do I forgive the man for what he did to me? And... I will never forgive him. I am a human being. You know, we feel what we feel. We have these feelings. And I remember what he did to me and I know what he did to me. So I'm never going to forgive him, but I need to go a certain way or, or, or to find some form of forgiveness. Because again, 
I'm just going to, you know, live in that anger and that hatred. And it's just going to build and build and build until I act out. And that's, you know, a big part of, of the world today. And that's a, a big problem of the world is that, you know, you've got a lot of these men who have never dealt with their shame and their anger and their abuse, and they hold it all inside and they keep it all inside. And it just builds and builds and builds until one day they act out and go on a shooting or they abuse and kill their wives and murder suicides and this, that, and the other. And, you know, let's speak honest about it. And let's be truthful about it. You know, 80% of global suicides are male and over 70% of these, of these male suicides are due to unresolved trauma. So, you know, like I said, it's a trickle down effect. If we can help these men, if we can get these men to finally come out and talk about it, find some vulnerability and communication and cry and open up, then we are going to save so many people, not just these men, but so many people. Um, so peace was a big thing. Peace, I'm not sorry, peace, forgiveness was a huge, a huge part of my healing journey and owning my shit, owning the bad things I've done because a lot of people will deny and pretend they didn't do that or it wasn't me or it was all their fault, but it was me. I did some bad things and I hurt people and it was all my fault. So I own my shit. And another big thing, the last thing for closure and finding some kind of peace was my therapist said to me, write a letter to your abuse or to your abuser and tell them what you want, however you want it. And you can do what you want with this letter. You can burn it, keep it on you forever, give it to a loved one, give it to your abuser, whatever you need to do with it, do with it. It took me six years to write that letter. Um, it took me six years. I was here. I went home. My sister's husband died. So I went to the funeral and it was, it was the right time because it, his death really kind of hit me. So I went home and I sat back into my bedroom in my, you know, childhood bedroom. I found this toy car that this, this guy gave me and I, I sat with it and I just put this car on the desk and, and wrote this letter to this man and went down to the park and to the local park in town sat with the letter. I didn't want to give it to anyone else. So I wanted to give it to him that with the letter and I burnt it and the ashes took it up to the heavens. And, and so he and I are the only ones who, who have read this letter or who know this letter. And that was a big part of me getting closure. Cause I, this man is dead. I'm never going to be able to talk to him or confront him or ask him questions or speak to him. So, you know, writing this letter was a big part of my closure. Finding peace that way was a big part of my closure and being able to move forward. So, you know, the whole therapy and, and that whole journey has really made me who I am today. And I know who I am today. I understand my life. I understand society. I understand people. And I just don't care for the bullshit and the, the drama anymore. And, you know, like you said, you read my book, you've read my screenplay it's very raw and it's very real. And if you're going to tell these stories, you can't sugarcoat it because then people aren't going to know the truth. They're not going to learn of, of what you and I really go through and the consequences and, and what loved ones go through. So to tell a story, I, I, I'm, I said this to my publisher when she approached me to, to write this book. And I said, I'm going to tell this story, but I'm going to be completely open and honest and you are not allowed to take anything out. And she didn't. 
true to her word, she was amazing and she let me write my story and tell my story the way I wanted to do it. Yes, she helped edit it and get it cleaned up, but all the heavy parts, all the shitty parts are all in there. And that's what's educational. Nathan, you, you touched on something very briefly that I think uh, could be expanded on a little bit, but I love the idea of writing this letter for closure, right? It's saying what you want to say, expressing the things that you couldn't have vocalized when you were that age and finally getting that closure. I think that's really amazing. And, you know, I would encourage a lot of people to do the same, you know, for whatever they're going through. But you, you touched on this. You said you'll never be able to confront him because he's dead. And I, I kind of want to touch on that very briefly, like, did that come to you organically? Did you just find out about it? Was it something you were looking for and you just happened to find out that he was passed? How did this come to be? I, um, I grew up, you know, this town I grew up in was a small town. So this big article came out and everyone in town knew and everyone was talking. And, you know, my mum grew up in this town and her friends and, and this man would have been about the same age as my mum. So, you know, these people growing up in these towns or, you know, my mum and her friends growing up in this town, they always knew of the, the weird man who lived down the street or the crazy guy who lived here or, you know, that person who they knew were touching boys or they knew was kind of weird, but no one ever said anything because it was in those times where no one said anything. And it was almost not accepted, but it was almost there. People knew about it, but never spoke about it. So my mum and her friends kind of got together and sat me down and spoke about it. And we, we spoke about it and we, we kind of worked out who and where and all of that. And yeah, they knew he was, he was dead. And that's, that's how I knew. And I always said, you know, if I, if I had the chance, I'd want to ask him questions and if it happened to him and why, and why me? And, and then I'd take a baseball bat and kill him. I always had that, that train of thought, not because of what he did to me, because of what, because what he's did to me, I'm at peace with now, just so he can do it to another kid. So he couldn't hurt another kid because, you know, you do it to one, you do it to many. It's never just one kid. Um, but yeah, I always had that concept of, yeah, I, I'd kill him and I wouldn't care. But yeah. you know, now I, I think differently, obviously. I don't know how I feel. Um, but like, like forgiveness, he did some horrendous things to me. He fucking killed me. He killed that kid in me. So I'm not going to forgive him and pretend it didn't happen. You, you know, I'm only human. I have feelings. I, I, I remember, I understand. I, I, but you know, I need to go. I need to start finding some form of forgiveness so I can fully get some closure and move forward and find some peace for myself. Otherwise, like I said, that anger and that hatred is just going to linger and linger and linger until it builds and builds. And and I act out or I do something silly. Nathan, we're about out of time, but I, I just, you know, I can't recommend this book uh, any any more than than I can because it's it's uh, a very important book, I think, for survivors. And I really thank you for writing it, for for bearing your soul and 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 coming out with it and and just like completely exposing yourself and and i think that was so brave and and so important to do and and i'm just so proud of you for doing that and i'm so uh thankful for you for doing that as we close i would like to just 
ask you, we do this sometimes when we interview uh, abuse survivors. Is there a message that you would like to share with other other survivors of childhood sexual abuse who are watching this program? Just to, I guess, just to never give up. That surround yourself with the right people. Surround yourself with the people who are going to believe you, who are going to love you, who are going to listen. Because more than anything, that is what we want because so many people tell their story and they're told to shut up or it didn't happen or you're lying or, or something like that. So surround yourself with the people who are going to love you and trust you and believe you and, and be there for you and just sit and listen because mostly that's what we want is someone that we can just talk to. So it is hard and it's emotional, but it does get easier. So find the courage and find it within yourself to be able to tell your story. Um, and if you can't tell your story, I've started a kind of a, a, an idea of stories of survival where people write their stories to me and I will read their stories out on Instagram and on, on TikTok. And I'm getting some people send me their stories and it, you know, it helps them to find some closure, be part of a community and know that they're not alone. So if there's anyone out there who, who is unable to tell their story or to talk about it, and if they want to write it down and send it to me, please do. And I will, I will read your story out, but just, just hang in there, be strong, surround yourself with the right people. And it does get easier. And we'll, we'll have your contact information uh, at the end of this program yeah. for people. Yeah. Yeah, well, Nathan, um, I mean, we just want to thank you so much for joining our program today. Just your willingness to open, the insights you're being given, just your honesty and just being able to own and take responsibility for, hey, I've done some things in my past that I'm not super proud of and not sugarcoating things. I, I just want to thank you so much for just this incredible story of triumph that you've had with your fellow survivors. We know you're on a path and you shared a lot about that path and we are so excited for all the healing that's going to grow on in your own life all the growth that is continuing on and just for continued success in your acting career your personal life uh i'm familiar with a documentary that you're working on and we just want to wish you all that success and more thank you mate yeah thank you very much for having me on and and you know i love the friendship that we've formed and i can't wait to meet you guys in person and 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 yeah moving on to bigger and better things and this movie and you know this play craig and and just you know a lot of opportunities coming our way and i want to work with you and just collaborate and work with all survivors and and really create change in the world so we need to support each other we need to come together i'm sure we'll we'll see a lot more of each other and in, in the future <laughs> and, and working uh, together on the same uh, cause um, I want to thank all of you uh, who joined us or are watching this program or who have joined us today live. We hope that you found this discussion enlightening, comforting, and helpful with your own healing process. Please check out our YouTube channel as well as all our uh, podcasts. Uh, we're available on all major podcast sites uh, for this and, and all of our interview programs. Uh, they're all powerful this one was powerful, and we thank you for joining us. Yes, and thanks again for all of you who are continuing to support uh, these sorts of programs and organizations such as Voices Beyond Assault. It's your courage that gives us all strength. Thank you. We'd like to thank you for joining us today for this important discussion. 
For more information about this program and other programs from the Men of Voices Beyond Assault, please go to our website at www.voicesbeyondassault.org. If you found this podcast helpful, and we hope you did, please let us know by liking it below. And to all of you survivors out there, remember, you are not alone. And together, we heal. Thank you. Am I okay? Don't say too late tomorrow. Too late tomorrow.